Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. Words from the fiction of Sherlock Holmes that they could say very well have come from my guest today, whose life of observation has turned him into one of the master storytellers of our age. Mark Gatiss is the screenwriter and actor whose razor-sharp wit and veritable versatility has taken him from Doctor Who to Dracula, Wolf Hall to Westeros, from the League of Gentlemen to a Laurence Olivier Award and much more besides. History is a burden. Stories can make us fly. Words he wrote for a Time Lord, but do they capture the conviction of today's changemaker? So to discuss time and relative dimensions in space, aka the TARDIS, and much more besides. Mark, welcome to the show. Welcome to Changemakers. Good to have you on. Let's start with Robin Hood, Peter Capaldi. History is a burden. Stories can make us fly. Beautiful prose. Is it what you believe? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, that's a... It's a good line, isn't it? I think it's uh, it's it's the truth, I think. Uh I mean, history history is a story told by the winners. That's what they always say, isn't it? And I, I, I've always found that very interesting. I mean, history obsessed me as a, as a kid. It was one of my favourite subjects at school. And I remember so much of it appealing to me. But I, it, you never really question at that age what version of it you might be being taught, do you? And I, I, interesting this, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I grew up with the, with, with the certain knowledge that there had never been a great female painter or a female composer. That was just, that's what we were taught. And now you realise that that's just because brilliant female painters and composers have been suppressed, mm. as have, as have um, uh, you know, black composers. And we just never heard those things. And that version, the sort of Michael Gove version of history, which was all the FX kits of Florence Nightingale, Lord Nelson, David Livingstone, that was our history, you know, so... It... Well, well, it was our history, but I mean, the, the second half of that, of that line, though, stories can make us fly. I mean, there's beautiful poetry in that. I mean, in terms of when, when you were writing a, a, a phrase like that, in terms of, was that about stories in the heart, stories in adventure? What, 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 what were you thinking when you were writing that for The Good it, Doctor? It does, it, it releases you, doesn't it? I mean, that's the joy. I mean, there's all this weird controversy at the moment about, the, the crown having to have a sort of health warning and it, it doesn't really it doesn't really pay much attention to the audience's potential intelligence that they can go, ooh, I'm not sure it was quite like that. This may have been telescope for dramatic purposes, you know, but obviously if you have something, a legend like Robin Hood, I was in fact watching, weirdly, watching a, a documentary about Robin Hood the other day and the, it's very like the Arthurian myth in terms of how much of it has sort of been bolted together over successive generations. And Robin Hood was a much, was a slightly more sinister figure and definitely just a robber. And then they introduce a kind of, a kind of Lancelot-like element, you know, and things like that. And I find that, I find that all very interesting. Stephen Muffin and I talk about that a lot with the, the, the way that this is true for Sherlock Holmes and for Dracula, incidentally, that the version that we all settled on is a kind of, it's what the public has decided they're like. Mm. The Dracula we know is is actually not Bram Stoker's specifically. It's Stoker plus Lugosi plus Lee plus all kinds of things. Sherlock Holmes is Doyle plus Rathbone plus Jeremy Brett, you know, and it's a very interesting thing that it's it's what's not it's what's not supposed to work, which is a kind of committee decision, but it's actually true. 
but also they they evolve and i suppose you know just to sort of yeah. um to take the to take the great detective's words to begin at the beginning i i dug out my uh, my copy of the adventures of sherlock Holmes when i was a teenager and i was reading the foreword which i thought was really interesting written in the 70s by robert howe ashby who was talking about that actually you know that, that we all see ourselves as 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 homes about the valiant about in, in our mind's eye we become Holmes and Watson, um, that it was about performing deeds of daring do. But it felt like a very much written at the time. But of course, your interpretation of Sherlock Holmes, a much more contemporary interpretation, one sort of vested in many more of the issues of today. Each generation seems to have its own take on many of these characters. Yes, absolutely. I mean, although with, with Sherlock, it was um, we saw it as a, a restoration, really, because we just wanted to get back to first principles. I mean, I remember some someone uh, we knew who finally got around to reading Conan Doyle and then was amazed to discover that the Afghan war was Doyle's idea, as it were. <laughs> and uh, all that stuff in the first episode, of course, is from is from Doyle, as, as so much of it is, because I think you just... Uh, the, the, those sort of great Titanic characters just... There's the a reason that they hang around. There's a reason that we always reinterpret them, is, and it's because they become iconic and and they mean something different to each generation. And it's it's a privilege to be able to play with them for a while, but you you know that you're just having a go and then putting them back in the case mm. for someone else to to play with. But, but I take the point about the restoration. But I think I think you know. I mean, I've I've, I've followed your career over the years, and I think you know that 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 quote of you. Oh, that was you. Yeah, it was me. I mean, I'm the Twitter <laughs> follower. I mean, that, that quote you see, but you do not observe. I mean, you are a master of observation. I mean, we've spoken about this in terms of, I grew up in Sheffield, you grew up in County Durham, the, the sort of like, the, you know, the, the observations that you've pulled out of your time. I love one of your lines in terms of never lose sight of your horizons. I mean, it feels like you have, you've brought so much of your own story, your own observations into everything that you do in terms of your writing. And I guess when you talk about the restoration of, of some of these big characters like, like Holmes and others, but it's also um, the restoration of, of stories that I guess that, that you've observed and that have had an influence of, uh, on you over the years. Well, first of all, that that line, uh, never lose sight of your horizons, is from Doctor Who. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's from a not very well-regarded uh, story from the mid-80s called The Two Doctors, but it's a great line. And I, I, it struck me very much at the time. I remember thinking, that's rather beautiful. It is. It's a good maxim for life because you can, I think it's important to move on, grow, develop. You don't have to stay at home, but it's good to know where you've come from and to keep looking back to it, you know. Mm. But um, no, I, I observation is a, is, a, is a key part of it. And, it, and as I said many times, it, a huge influence because of that is, is Alan Bennett and, and the, the extent to which when I first became aware of his work, it, it felt like someone was sort of lifting up a lid on my own existence. And I, I, you know, you don't expect to see that sort of thing on TV. And it's, it was uncanny, some of it. Why, you know? why, did, why did you feel like, because I mean, I, I know he's on the, your lockdown list that accompanies this um, episode as, as, as one of your, your great inspirations. I mean, now I was thinking about reading about you, I was thinking Alan Bennett, Tweed, The North. I mean, these are all, all key parts of your, of your character. I mean, obviously Alan Bennett writes, there's a melancholic style, there's a romantic style, there's an observational style. I mean, is that what you recognise in him? Is that what you like in him? Or, or are there other things you see? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, all those things, because definitely the melancholy, the sort of bittersweetness of his 
of his writing and his observation, but it's also he's very sharp. There's a sharpness to it, which I've always loved. It's not it's not actually sentimental, and I, I always hated that sort of spitting image idea of it was just being about cups of tea and Thor Heard, you know. Well, you know, what he wrote for Thor Heard is actually very bleak, that especially my one of my absolute favorite talking heads, which is Waiting for the Telegraph, which is a stunning piece of writing and so upsetting, really genuinely tragic. But, the, but there was so much always that just felt like, as I say, it was just the things that the Sunday afternoonness of living in the North that you never thought you'd see dramatize. And the, the, as I always say, the, the, the one that, that I first saw was a play called Our Winnie with Elizabeth Spriggs taking her mentally disabled daughter to the crematorium on a Sunday. And I remember just thinking, this is just, how do you know this? And that, you know, and then the brilliant thing is, I, I, I know Alan a little and, and uh, but you know, that, that entire strand of his life is be that beautiful notion of passing it on and only connect and, you know, and, uh, and that he says in his diaries, when you read something in a book written 200 years ago, which makes you sit up and think that's just my life, then it's like someone has reached out their hand from the past and it's a, mm. it's a beautiful I, feeling. I mean, it's funny about that passing on the baton because I mean, something else I've, I've, I've taken, you know, read, reading a lot about your story is that, I mean, there is, a, there is a constant issue about mortality, I think, that comes into this, about being aware of being on the planet at a moment in time for a period of time. You know, I was re reading you know, your, your line as Mycroft, um, everybody dies, it's the one thing human beings can be relied upon to do. How can it still come as a surprise to people that not <laughs> delivered half as beautifully as you, you'll have delivered it? But I mean, that and, and many other things seems to be part of the, the hinterland, the backstory in terms of what of, of what's sort of, I guess, helping you to sort of frame what it is that you're observing and, and I guess the conclusions you reach as a result. I, well, I, I, I was a death obsessed child and I've always been interested in the paraphernalia of it, you know, in a sort of slightly comic way. I always loved, you know, Dave Allen and anything with coffins and undertakers. <laughs> and my first Doctor Who is about that. If, you know, it's all, it's a very strong strand, but it's because I'm absolute, or I was, absolutely petrified of it mm. and and I, I think that's why it casts a great shadow over everything I do is that is it is a fear of it have you come to have you come to terms with it I mean oh, I, yes. I, I spent yeah. a lot of my early years in the same exactly the same boat so being extremely worried about about death and of course you know this is a year where I guess it, it's it's right back on the agenda for for so many people in terms of having to face challenges that they never thought they'd have to face I was thinking about it just uh, getting ready for this interview, that it, it now turns out that one of the most dangerous places you can visit is a supermarket. Who'd have thought that a year ago? Well, yes, because there's more. There's, if one in one in thirty people in London have got it, <laughs> then that's the place to avoid, isn't it? No, I, I I have come to terms with it much more. I don't relish it, don't look forward to it, but I have much, I have come to terms with it a lot more. And I and actually I. I, I flee from my teenage morbidity now. I mean, so so much of that sort of stuff, I just don't want to go there anymore. Um, I, it, it's funny how your tastes change and and all that kind of... I read this wonderful thing the other day, it really made me howl. This, this girl during lockdown had read somewhere that if you treat, if you're kind to ravens and crows, if you feed them, they become very loyal. And she said she had a very gothy teenage and decided to give it a go. And now 
they won't leave her alone. There were five of them. There's now 15. She's got the crow vaccine. (laughs) And there's 15 15 of them. And when her neighbours come to try and talk to her for a socially distanced chat, they attack them because they... (laughs) It made me laugh so much. And I thought, this poor sort of gothy girl with her eyeliner and a long fringe, like that girl in The Impossibles, you know. And so she's got everything she ever wanted, which is an army of crows. Um, well, to, to take it from West Ross to West London. I mean, I was just thinking about this. You know, you, you wrote, um, in, or sorry, in an interview in 2017 to the FT, you said, I'm so, so depressed about the state of the world that it, it is physically affecting. Now, now that, was, that was four years ago. And... I mean, I'm presuming you're not of the school that things have only got better since then. I mean, how do you feel about the world in, in 2021? I mean, or, or maybe not. I mean, do you feel more, more positive about it? I, I'm a natural optimist. I'm a cockeyed optimist, really. Um, but it, the last few years have really hit me. Um, I think particularly, I remember, well, it's 20, sort of 2016, Trump and Brexit, uh, I got, it really knocked me for six. I found, you know, we all have black dogs, but I just, I, it was actually, it was around Christmas of that year. I was really properly depressed, I think, the first time. I just couldn't sort of shake it off. I remember, I think maybe it was that interview. I definitely did one interview with the Telegraph or something, but when I read it back, I thought <laughs> they should have put a little little Samaritan's number at the bottom because it was so bleak. But well, I really there, but there, are, there are some bleak, because, you know, you do come across as a very positive person I mean we've spoken about the difference I guess between positivity and, and optimism but you you talked about this this fact in another interview but that being in the middle of a global emergency is not conducive yeah. to the muse um <laughs> and it, you come back to the question of what's it for I mean I, I read this and I thought this is probably not going to be the lightest interview that I do this year I honestly think if Trump had won we would have been charting an extraordinarily dark path mm. what what's what it was it's a it's I mean you know he's still got a fortnight to do something terrifying that's what worries me at the moment but the the fact that the American system was able so far to stand up to this by the skin of its teeth is very heartening what's frightening is the idea that what what will happen next what will what will they would be emboldened to try next and whether it'll it's capable of standing up to that what's interesting is it's really Without the sort of eclipse of Trump, it's really highlighted how what what utter charlatans uh, Johnson and his cabal are, and actually across the world, the other the other hard men. Why is that? Well, because without you know without their biggest the biggest bully in the room, you can see them much more for what they are. They're suddenly having to scrabble around trying to work out how to deal with a less bullying administration, mm. and. Um, it does give me hope. I mean, it, it, it's not being pointlessly optimistic. It's just, it's just, it, it's just the incredible change it will make to think that these people are not venal. You know, it's as simple as that. And, and I suppose the story you can narrate from that, in terms of where the world goes next, and you know, I mean, what, one thing I do want to talk about because the story that you are helping narrate is 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 a brilliant initiative called Queer Britain, um, yeah. which is I mean, you did a, a brilliant reading of, of Mr. Lucas's diaries, but also helping them um, to create a brilliant new museum. Pick up the story for us in terms of what you're doing on that, because this is, this is a story you're helping to narrate um, in terms of gay culture in the future. Well, it's, just, you know, it, it's back to history, really, and, it, and, and my lifelong interest in that, but it's an initiative to sort of rescue 
um, so much of of uh, of gay history because it's it is by its very nature incredibly ephemeral. Um, the 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 history of of gay life before the sixties tends to be only observed through the prism of police records. I mean mm. that is in itself extraordinary, but. But and obviously it, it, it presents a particular view of, of the world, but also thank weirdly, thank God these things happened because there'd be nothing at all. Nothing. It would only be word of mouth and then people would die. You know, it would become an oral tradition only. So there's a huge Joe Galliano and, 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 and his team as a huge effort to try and rescue stuff, archives, photographs personal memoirs, Mr. Lucas's incredible diaries, which are like this amazing cross between Joe Orton and Mr. and Puta, you know, this sort of uh, extraordinary uh, raffish sex life of this civil servant combined with his, with his really quite ordinary observations on the state of the world. I find them absolutely fascinating. Um, and, you know, there's so many things like that, which, which are just, would just vanish otherwise. And, and well, I'm also tell, telling the story of, of a lost London, because I mean, I've, Joe is the second interview this week. And, and the point he makes is that, you know, there are generations that will have a very different relationship with the year 1967. Um, and in terms of the legalization of homosexuality, if you were born before that, it becomes like almost like a, a moment of emancipation, a moment of freedom for a new generation. It's, it's, it's a kind of dim and distant memory. And I suppose this kind of reclaiming the nation's family tree is, a, is, is something where the role of the storyteller becomes increasingly important. But you know, it's like all it's like anything like this, any aspect of history, that the, the crucial thing is not to lecture, it's not to wag your finger at the new generation, it's to just make sure it's there if you have an inquiring mind. You know, I saw a, I saw a TV debate a couple, last year maybe, uh, and there were two gay guys on who actually had no idea it had ever been illegal. Mm. And, it was a it was an upsetting moment because you think Jesus Christ you don't have to go very far to find these things so, out in the sixties. At the same time, what's amazing is that they've grown up in a in a world untroubled as far as they're concerned by such a notion. But what we what we, what's clear is that as it's still illegal in in uh, dozens of countries and punishable by death in at least ten. Um, that these these freedoms can disappear in a second. That's what I mean about you know about the Trump administration and the the, the way that just by the will of the people that suddenly this genuinely terrifying dark America emerged, which none of us saw coming. I mean, I, I read something um, where you you spoke about how living in London you felt completely at ease and that there were parts of the country that if you visited there, you'd felt that you would need to, this would modify your your behaviour. I mean, I, I think that is the companion piece to what, what you're speaking about, is this need to sort of fit in, modify. Um, I, I suppose in terms of where things sit today, yes, you could see those heavy-handed changes, but in terms of gay culture as you see it in 2021, with, I, I suppose with an eye on your formative years, in terms of where you feel about about where it sits, about its confidence, about its expression. Do you feel good about that? Yes. 
and no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not question time, Mark. It's like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I do. Yes, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a tough one. This. I think. I think there's. It's it's the same point really. I'm trying to make, which is that. The, there, there are there are battles. Battles are fought, and the people who fight the battles can never quite reconcile the fact themselves the fact that the generation that comes after them isn't interested. Yeah, and your war stories. Yes, in your war stories, um, and then of course they'll have their own war stories, and the same thing will happen to them in whatever capacity. And of course, in so many ways, it's absolutely amazing that there are. Uh, you know, LGBT societies in, in schools, that, that Section 28 was abolished, that that uh, HIV is, is now um, a survivable condition. And, and, and you know, uh, but hand in hand with that, you have, of course, there is that there can be a certain blaseness. There can be people who have no idea that there was ever an illegal act. They, they think everything is rosy. So you have to just, you have to just, you know, live with that and also, welcome it but but try try what you can to to make sure that people are able to access their own history but i said well i mean history is the key thing that keeps coming up because i i I see you as a kind of keen student of the human experience and i think that allows you to bring to life experiences um in ways that you know isn't about listing or dating or whatever it might be i mean i I listened to uh matt kane's attitude heroes interview with you and I thought when when you were talking about um, the conversation coming out with your mother, um, I was laughing my head off in terms of seeing it. And then, and then the, the finishing line, the, the payoff line of don't tell your father it would kill him. Um, <laughs> I thought that was, I mean, I don't know whether you want to pick up the story there, but I mean, I just thought that is, that is the way that you bring people into a conversation and get them to feel, you know, the sort of the involvement, the empathy, the experience, the sort of the highs, the lows. Um, I mean, is it, this is, I, I guess, the, the role of the storyteller, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so I just I just restructured it as a joke. You see, that's the I just <laughs> slipped in a punchline at the end to make people interested. <laughs> I mean, it's a great punchline, but but again, I mean, I suppose that that sort of those formative years in, in terms of growing up in, in the north of England, you lived opposite a psychiatric hospital where both of your parents worked. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about the the young Mark and and the experiences that create the mark that we know and love today in terms of, you know, what what should we take out of those early years in terms of the person that we've come to know? I I mean, I think it's absolutely true. The child is father to the man, you know, Uh, and I spent a long time sort of slightly denying the massive influence of of these strange Northern Gothic things on me, but it's all obviously true. It's all there. (laughs) And I, I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot about, I was writing something the other day and I thought uh, one of the first films I saw was from Russia with Love and uh, uh, actually I saw Diamonds Are Forever and then a double bill, re-released double bill of uh, from Russia with Love and Thunderball. And the so you're definitely where, a Sean Connery man I mean, in yeah, terms of, I'm, 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 there's, no, there's no Roger Moore in, in, no, uh, in, in the Marketing script. I'm officially Connery with Moore rising. <laughs> but the bit where... Um, the, the, the bit where Robert Shaw strangles, tries to strangle Bond with the, the wrist wire thing yeah. has stayed with me forever. It's, it constantly crops up in, in any sort of action sequence. And sometimes I just think, oh, God, look, there it is again. And it's, it's hugely because of those first formative influences. 
And I, think I, I, I loved in that movie that he identified Robert Shaw as the villain because he ordered red wine with fish. That should have told me something. Exactly. <laughs> Which I thought spoke so much about the era and about the sort of like the nature of, of the, that society then. It's Bond's, it's Bond's snobbery. Bond snobbery. Great, isn't it? It is a really terrific line. <laughs> I think, you know, there are things like, whether it's, whether it's um, visual, whether it's, you know, films you saw, books you read, or Im impressions um, from school or, you know, uh, you know I, I think... I think growing up in the north, the north is is distinctly different, and I, I I did spend a long time sort of trying to pretend it wasn't, but I think it really is. I think oh. that's and I think that's something to celebrate rather than deny. It's a weird thing; it still hangs over. We we used to laugh about this in the early days of the League of Gentlemen that they'd always describe us as four northern lads, and and again, Alan Bennett famously said, you know, it would say this flaxen-haired northern lad, and it would it would never say that if he came from Oxford or. Sorry, it just doesn't. It's well, but, no, there is identity. I mean, I, I remember my, talking to my father about it when he first watched Phoenix Nights. I mean, he just didn't think it was very funny because he thought it was almost more like a documentary than, yeah, yeah. than uh, you know, he, he genuinely just thought this is what, what this is our life, this is what happens. I mean, so there is something about, about that northern experience, but in terms of that experience and the gift of expression, the gift of language, the gift of humor. When, when were the moments that you realised that perhaps there was a gift there, something that you could work with? Was there, was there a moment or did it just happen over time? Um, well, I mean, I, it's a classic thing. I used to, I could make people laugh in the playground, but not because they were going to hit me. It's not a bullying avoidance tactic like most people's stories. I just, I've always liked to laugh. And I, all my heroes as, as a kid were comics, really, and comic actors like, Ronnie Barker, Leonard Rossiter, Alistair Sim, and uh, I loved Python. I loved uh, Rowan Atkinson's 66 Today. Um, his album Live in Belfast was a huge influence on me. I remember I, list, I wore it out and I, listening to the sketches he did with Richard Curtis, I loved them. I used to I performed a couple of them at school. I remember that. So I just thought I always liked to laugh and I, I suppose liked to see the world through that kind of lens really and I that's never left me we, my partner and I are watching this terrible series on Netflix at the moment called Tiny Little Things set in a dance school and one of it's really terrible but we're quite addicted to it I was just thinking I've watched so many Netflix films during lockdown I can't I haven't actually seen that one I have a look <laughs> at it <laughs> there's also there's no explanation of the title yeah. except obviously they wanted to sound like big little lies they're only yeah. kind of but, but one of the abiding problems with it, there is the single laugh in it, not a single laugh. So it's what, it, mirth, mirthless, humorless. Mirthless, exactly. And it, it mm. thinks that by being like that, it's very serious and important. And in fact, of course, the great thing about life is that it's full of totally fucked up moments of inappropriate humor. And that's, that's what, I've said this many times before, but I always thought there's a really false distinction between comedy and drama in terms of what gets the awards or what gets the attention, you know, and a, a, a sitcom can be the most beloved thing in the country. I was watching Markham and Wise at Christmas, some of the lost tapes that were recovered, you know, from the 60s, and, and it, it's no accident that they're still so beloved. It's no accident that Ant and Deck are definitely the, the Eric and Ernie du jour. People love them, mm. and it's, and it's for, 
it's a huge it's hugely down to the fact they're just incredibly funny people well, well humor is a gift right isn't it because humor is about what makes people feel good about life it it can it can diffuse situations i mean and, and i think the thing with a lot of funny people is that they don't because they are by nature naturally funny they don't realize what an exceptional gift it is that they actually have and and actually you know what a, what an important gift it is in terms of making people feel better about life and to actually actually have fun in, in the in the in the process i remember uh who's the gift from though michael is it from god well well i don't know i mean i, I mean i wasn't i mean we don't necessarily do that on this show i mean i'm i'm wondering is it nature nurture who knows but i mean you are you know you've got that that gift of expression mark that ability to see things that few others see which are absolutely wonderful because they're so humorous well that's very kind of you i do remember I, I was reading a book once about um max beerbohm the great wit uh, writer and artist and uh uh he um he did all famously did all these caricatures of some persons of the 19th century the 1890s you know, wild and beardsley and and uh andre guide and all these people and there was one of them um, who is not famous at all. I've never always been very strong. I've, I wish I could remember his name, but he was basically just a lovely man. Uh, everybody loved him. He, he was always the best and funniest person at dinner parties. He wasn't a poet or a writer or an actor or anything. He was just a really funny man. And I love that Beerbohm made a point of commemorating him because he would otherwise be kind of lost to history. But, but your book to read is 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 Great Expectations, which which mm-hmm. is, I mean it's not it's not a side splitter in terms of in terms of the sort of Dickensian humour, but it is a story of love lost, love found, coming back together again. I mean, in terms of what you, you took out of, of the book and the message it, it gave to you, what, 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 what do you draw from it in terms of why you changed well, it? Well, it's a very important book to me that I was, I was given it for my fifth birth, no, for, for Christmas when I was five by Santa Claus. I went ah. a special trip uh, to Phoenix in Newcastle I got into Santa's. You must rock. have had some reading ability at five to read games. <laughs> no, well, well, wait, wait, wait. There's more to it. There's more to it. I got into the Santa's rocket in Phoenix. Went to the North Pole. I remember this so well. I had to walk down a long corridor. Santa was at the end. I can remember he smelled of of bo and beer, and he gave me this book, which I've still got. Great expectations, complete and unabridged. Obviously, I didn't read it when I was five, but when I finally did read it. And it got to the great twist. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. Uh, it, it affected me profoundly because it's a really great story. It's short. It's a short dickhead. Mm. It, it's such a great one. Everything's brilliant about it. Uh, but that moment made my jaw drop. It was, And I remember thinking I was so transported by that narrative and also just by the moment, the possibilities that seemed to open up in terms of what you could do with a story. Well, and I was thinking, you know, that, that final line, I saw no shadow of another parting from her, that sort of, that, that sense of, you now I was wondering, obviously people take different meanings out of that line, I guess, in terms of what it means to them. But I mean, I suppose last question in terms of that sense of the future, that sense of togetherness, you know, what, what should we take of your reading of that and your reading of the future, I guess? Oh, gosh. I think we're, we're largely all right. Uh, I, I think a lot these days about how... Is it, a, is it a sign of our own self-obsession that we think we're the generation that will destroy everything? Mm. You know, if you look back to the 
fifth monarchists and the the turn of every century or every millennium people always thought oh no this is it this is the end everybody every generation that's what people seem to not get there's every generation thinks it's the exceptional generation that's going to do it all in exactly i mean obviously we have the power to do it which others didn't but Mm. again is it just a sense of our own sort of self-obsession that we think we're the ones who are who are important enough to do it so largely we're okay and actually if you if you manage to tune out all the terrible racket from the from the online world and the fact that most political decisions don't affect you at all you know if you're lucky enough to be able to feed your kids and put the bins out then then you're all right I'm going to bank that. We're all right. I mean, you're not going to go into horrible histories. I mean, let's, let's, uh, Mark, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for joining me on this episode. And let me say, I mean, it's been a love of language, the will to write, the laughter, the tears of life. All the ingredients have equipped this master storyteller with a message that moves mind and food for thought for change makers. For as Mark might say, one man's fish is another man's poisson. He did say <laughs> that. that wasn't, it wasn't Doctor Who that said that, was it? I mean, yeah, that was, I'm afraid that's terrible, isn't it? Well, that's, that's, I know it's rather excellent. It feels, like we're back to, it feels like we're back to Robert Shaw. Mark, thank you very much. And we'll see you all for the next change makers. Thank you very much. Take care.